I think um, there's going to be some more folk joining us, obviously, some people trying to rush, rush back after uh, work. I want to, though, um, start the evenings at uh, 7.45. We've just got four evenings together, so um, we're going to start at 7.45. We're going to finish at half past nine prompt. I'd just like to make sure you know we're going to be out of the building at half past nine. And at any time during the evening, if you want to get a refill on your coffee, then please go ahead and do that. The trolley will be coming in a little while when you've run out. Uh, so you can pop out for a refill. Toilets are just out of the door on the right-hand side and straight down the stairs. And at any point during the evening, if you find the material that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing to you tonight is affecting you in maybe some way, I'd encourage you to stay. It's totally normal for things, when we're talking about the emotions, for things to kind of be stirred up in us. In fact, it's quite healthy. At the same time, if you feel just uncomfortable and you want to go out and get a breather, then please feel absolutely free to do that. Let me introduce myself. I know there's a number of you who, who don't come to church or um, uh, haven't been in a setting like this before. I'm Will Vanderhaar. I lead the church that meets here and also run uh, a charity. I'm one of the founding directors of Mind Soul Foundation, which is a, a, a think tank about um, mental, emotional health and Christian spirituality. What you guys are going to get tonight and over the course isn't, with, isn't me with my vicar hat on, primarily. It's me with, my, um, uh, with more of my psychological outlook um, uh, you know, in, 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 in that kind of persona. So I want you to um, try and listen to me openly. Um, the worst thing for me would be at the end of the evening if uh, all the, kind of the, the Christians here come to me and say, well, there wasn't very much Bible in tonight's sermon, vicar. <laughs> okay, that uh, wouldn't really help me. Uh, the purpose here is that we, we're going to explore the emotions and... Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit tonight about an introduction uh, to psychology and to ourselves. Uh, and the plan is that all of this has uh, emotional and a spiritual benefit for all of us. So the prerequisite of the course isn't that you're someone who maybe is suffering with a clinical emotional or mental health disorder, although you're very welcome if you are one of those people, but it's actually that we can all grow in some way through engaging with our emotions. And hopefully the sessions will... Um, build on one another to open up a development in your own personal emotional and spiritual growth. That's the plan. Now, last year or two years ago when we ran the course here, we, we had table groups. And that was good for um, some folk, but other folk found it quite uncomfortable having enforced discussions about emotions with people they didn't know very well. So I took that on board, and what we're going to be doing um, throughout these course these course sessions is a bit more of a what I call a TED style um, talk and the talk's going to be interspersed with opportunities for you to think. If you've got a notebook that's helpful, if you've got a mobile phone with notes on it then please feel free to, to do that. If you want to tweet about the course you can just tweet me at VicarWill or hashtag Mind and Soul. Uh, please feel free to do that if you've got an iPad or any of those gadgets and you want to kind of make notes. I would really encourage you to do that because as you tend to make notes and reflect on what you've been learning, that will then inform your behaviours as we move forward. So that's a kind of a brief introduction and a welcome to you. And it's just great to have you here. And obviously there's no stipulation. If you find tonight utterly boring, I won't be at all offended if you don't come back next week. So don't feel that uh, you're kind of locked into this. I just want you to feel completely relaxed and at ease. There's a few ground rules um, I, want to, I want to lay down. Uh, and that's always important when we're doing any sort of work on emotional or, or mental health. The first one is that uh, I am not a uh, consultant psychiatrist. 
or a clinical psychologist, as my two partners in the foundation are. I'm an Anglican priest who's done a lot of work in this area. But I, I want you to know that nothing that I'm going to be bringing to you over the next four weeks uh, you couldn't find in a decent psychological textbook, and it's of a level which we would describe as within the self-help genre of intervention. So the material that I'm bringing is not... Um, a, a sort of a, a, a kind of some sort of substitute for a clinical intervention. By that I mean if you're receiving medication or if you're involved in therapy uh, or if you're receiving counselling, this isn't a substitute for any of those things. So please don't uh, cash in your chips and say, don't worry, I've been on the minor soul course at St. Peter's Church, I don't need any help anymore. Okay? This is a complementary. Uh, kind of discussion and exploration which will add to your understanding and hopefully benefit you if you're someone who is perfectly well in the emotions or someone who's struggling in the emotions at this time. And um, it's also really important for you all to understand that everyone is on a journey and actually within the course you'll learn that no one has reached the pinnacle of emotional or mental health that we all have an emotional and a mental health problem whether we've got a classification for emotional and mental health or not and that we shouldn't cast any aspersions within this group about who is particularly well and who isn't particularly well. Uh, we believe very much that God loves us all as people, certainly as Christians, we believe that, and that we are all on this journey of what we call maturation, the journey of growth. And this, for Christians, is understood in the journey of discipleship. So this is a part of what discipleship looks like. It's also really important as a ground rule that you don't project your problems onto me. We'll talk about transference a bit later on and you'll, you'll learn about that. But I'm also a sufferer and I'm also a journeyman in this area. So I'm talking to you as someone who understands the emotions because I struggle with the emotions. So I'm here to, to walk with you, not to be the kind of the locus of your anger or frustration that you've not made certain steps forward in the emotional arena. So just feel relaxed but um, see that you're walking alongside me, not walking against me. W, yes? I'll talk a little bit more about that later. If you think about the root of the word, it means maturing. So what we want to do in the emotions is kind of grow up and mature. And it doesn't matter whether you are uh, 10 or 90, you can still go on this journey. Lots of you will be thinking a bit about parents at some points during the next four weeks, and you'll be thinking, oh yeah, why didn't my mum grow up a bit more? Why did she still treat me like a kid? You know, and uh, we'll be having those sort of discussions, and you'll be reflecting on the, some of those things in a, in a light way. I want to encourage you to also, just as, a, just as a warning, that sometimes when we do engage in the emotions, even in this light and self-help way, that sometimes things, memories, experiences can rise up within us and cause us a significant amount of distress. And that's something we have to be ready for, but also it's something that we need to be ready to ask for help with. And so I want to encourage you that if anything comes up within these sessions, actually you feel deeply uncomfortable, maybe you feel distressed, I always would recommend that you make your first port of call your general practitioner, your GP, uh, to have a chat with them as, a, a, as your first responsibility. Uh, obviously, if it's a much lighter thing, then you can talk to me uh, as your vicar or as a co-journeyman uh, or seek help or assistance uh, from a counsellor or psychotherapist. That's just a warning, so we all know, actually, there might be things that come up uh, that we need to deal with. Great. So let's start. How are you feeling? Everyone's looking a little bit nervous right now. 
people are, some people are, well, you're speaking for the group now. Uh, some people are feeling nervous, other people are feeling, feeling bold. But when, when, when we think about emotions, what we're going to start off with is asking the question, you know, what are our emotions? Have you thought about that? Have you asked that question before? What is emotional health uh, as a topic? Because when we, when we think about emotions, lots of us can kind of have an idea that, well, uh, she's a bit emotional, or he's a bit over-emotional. We can talk about emotions in quite a disparaging way, or we can think about simple emotions, uh, I'm happy today, or I'm angry today, or I'm sad today. But actually, emotional health is much more than understanding feelings. Uh, emotional health refers to our overall psychological state, that is, the state of our minds. And so if I start to ask you, how are you feeling right now, just in a quiet moment, I want you to qualify how you feel using three words. If there's any brave person who wants to shout out those three words, you're welcome to do that now. Yep, Pavani? Okay, excited, interested, looking forward. I could say excited of all those is uh, an emotion. Anticipation maybe would be another emotion. Expectation. Anyone else want to share? It's very open, so you can just shout at any time. I won't be at all offended. If you're feeling thoroughly angry and PO'd with me at this stage, then you're very welcome to say that too. Agitated. Excellent. Thanks, Anita. Agitated is a good emotion. So uh, we, we can describe emotions. It's actually incredibly difficult if we haven't been trained to describe how we feel. And you might find that your emotional vocabulary is quite small. And part of this journey is about saying, actually, let's develop an emotional vocabulary. Let's begin to uh, understand and begin to ask the questions, how am I? How am I actually doing? Now, as we start off here, some of us will have learned, we'll talk again about familial history a bit later on in the course, some of us will have begun here from the uh, familial point of fact of saying actually emotions are for weaklings and um, we don't talk about emotions in our family, so you get on, you get on with it. Others of us will have come from family settings where uh, there's huge exuberance in the emotions and we're encouraged to say, great, tell us exactly how you feel. Maybe your mum is a therapist and, you know, from teenage years she's invited you around the, di around the dinner table to kind of divulge all, all, of, your, uh, all of your feelings e every dinner time. It's been a bit overwhelming. But for all of us, we'll, have a, we'll start this course from, from a different place. Some of us will have been invited to express our emotions, and some of us will be invited to repress our emotions. But we need to begin together to ask the question, what is my emotional vocabulary? And actually, the more developed that vocabulary, the greater our emotional health and well-being. So emotional well-being is not about the absence of uh, a disorder like depression or anxiety or another psychological issue. In fact, you might have a clinical uh, issue, or you might have a clinical problem, you might have a diagnosis, but actually that doesn't deny you the opportunity to be emotionally healthy. And some of the most emotionally resolved people I've met are some of the people with the hardest categories of uh, clinical uh, disorder. Some of them have, have actually grown through their disorder <clears throat> to understand themselves so deeply that actually they have incredible balance. And I think they demonstrate incredible courage because often they're working against some dysfunctional emotions in order to stay healthy in the marketplace. 
Whereas some other folk who will be classified as being emotionally very strong and resolute are often quite emotionally, what we call emotionally delinquent. They're unable to identify their emotions and they respond out of hand without any awareness of themselves. So what we want to say is that emotional health and well-being isn't dependent upon the existence or the non-existence of any kind of psychological disorder. We can all be emotionally well regardless of uh, what's going on in our background. But we have to make a determined attempt to actually step forward into that. If we're going to begin to develop an emotional agenda, I want you to, to ask yourself, just in this moment, which emotions in your experience have been marked as unsafe and which emotions in your experience have been marked as safe? I'm not going to qualify what, who might have marked those or how they might have been marked, but I want you just to ask yourself, for a moment, which emotions have, for you, been marked as unsafe and which emotions for you have been marked as being safe. So when you're thinking about the emotions, just, just try and identify that for a minute. Which ones would you say are safe? Which ones would you say are unsafe? Just try and identify that if you can. It's a difficult question, isn't it? Who said that an emotion is safe? Who said one is okay? Mike, it does depend on the context. Just, just in outline, trying to identify within our experience how many of our emotions might have been cut off at source. So we might think, actually, in our context, in our familial context, is it safe to be angry? In our work context, it's maybe easy to ask, is it easy and safe to be angry? So it's a, it's a helpful point to say, what setting... Is it okay to demonstrate emotion? And in what setting is it not okay? Is it okay to demonstrate your emotions in church? Is it okay to demonstrate your emotions at work? Which emotions in your experience have been marked as safe and which ones as unsafe? Okay. Now... What we're trying to do here um, in St. Peter's at the Minor Soul Course is respond to uh, Jesus' teaching about personality. That uh, The Bible says that we've been offered life and life in all its fullness in John 10.10. And that's actually our Easter verse. It's life and life in all its fullness. And what we want to do is try and respond to this idea that what's it look like to be fully human in the emotional realm? What's it feel like? What's it look like to be emotionally uh, full to experience life and life in all its fullness. And is life in all its fullness uh, a full physical life, a full emotional life, or a full spiritual life? How does that look uh, for the Christian journeyman or woman? What's it look like uh, for you to embrace life and life in all its fullness? And we add to that a kind of community component too, to say what does life in all its fullness look like as a church body? Or if you don't come to church, what does life in all its fullness look like within your family or within your broader relationships? How do you express yourself and how do you enrich others in your emotional expression? So there's something in the emotions which uh, acts and interacts uh, with one another. And um, we, we want to sort of bless each other through this course with this idea of interactivity. 
actually, if emotions have been cut off at source for me, then am I denying those emotions, those people uh, I'm working with, I'm communing with in church, or I'm in family with? What emotions have been cut off and what, which emotions have been allowed? And if emotions have been cut off, am I actually denying people I'm in relationship with some of the emotions that I'm genuinely feeling? So, for example, if you feel particularly angry in church, uh, about church, maybe you've had struggles in church, and yet you come to church and you put on your perma smile and your hello vicar handshake as, you, as, handshake as you come in the door, and does that interaction, is that interaction positive for me? Or is it positive for you? Or is it positive for the group at large? Who's benefiting from those emotions being repressed or cut off or denied? We have perceptions about what's safe and unsafe, and this course is about opening some of those up and allowing you to begin to explore, to experiment, and ask uh, bigger questions. So uh, emotional health is a broad experience. It's an attitude. It's the way we choose to view external input, and it's how we react to different situations. It's all about attitude. It's the way we choose to view the external and it's the way we choose to react to the external. And it's very much holding what is within us too. So when you're going to describe your emotional health, how would you mark yourself up right now? We, we do on the Mind and Soul course an initial survey. And I just want you to think about some of these categories. If I was going to ask you at this stage, uh, on a line, scale 1 to 10, I feel trapped in the past or I feel free for the future? Whereabouts would you mark yourself? I feel trapped in the past. I feel free to the future. Maybe just, if you're taking notes, you want to jot down a number. Uh, what about uh, the present? Uh, I don't know who I am, or I know who I am. Where would, you, where would you grade yourself? I don't know really who I am, or actually, I'm really sure I do know exactly who I am. What about in the world of relationships? I have really unhealthy relationships. Or, this end of the scale, number 10, I have really healthy relationships, really helpful relationships. What about problems? Think about problems. Do you feel like I'm going in circles? Or do you feel like I know how to start changing? Where would you put yourself on the scale? I feel like I'm going in circles around zero. I feel like I know how to start changing, number 10. And what about your potential? Over here, I can't think about the future. And over here, I know what I want to do. And then finally, the idea of the path. Over here, I don't know where to start my journey. And over here, I know the first steps. So if you're thinking about calibrating yourself on this sort of rough emotional chart, whereabouts would you grade yourself on average? If you're going to put them all together, are you a 4.5? Are you a 7? Are you feeling like a 10 in all areas, or are you feeling like a 0? How, how are you feeling tonight? Bearing in mind that on different days, and because of different work experiences and different family experiences, and maybe even the car journey over here, you'll feel different. That will colour your experience, your view, and your outlook. So, emotional health, it's a, a broad picture. And what we're going to do is just identify some uh, colourful emotions. And um, 
let's, let's think about what makes up our emotional wheel. What makes up a perfect kind of emotional wheel to start with? Let's have some emotions from the floor. These aren't your emotions. These are just ones you've thought of. Let's, happy, great. And within the context of happy, I want to come out with as many different emotions related to happy as we possibly can. Ready? Let's go. Ecstatic. Yeah, these are the up emotions with happy, alongside happy. Success, Success okay. Fulfilled. Fulfilled. Joyful. Joyful, excellent. Content. Peaceful. Great. Purposeful, Purposeful. okay. We're, start, we're starting to dry up. We're starting to dry up in the happy emotions. Okay. Okay, we could, we're starting to get a bit more dubious. But if we think about, if think about a piece of pie and think about the emotions surrounding happiness, you would have thought that we would have more descriptives of happiness. We've got happy, joyful, ecstatic, and then we start slightly moving away from happy into peaceful, content, purposeful. So that's a piece of the pie, happy. What about an excited emotion? What, what excited, these kind of bleed into one another. What excited is a piece of the pie? What other emotions are there around excited? Energetic, okay. Overwhelmed. Overwhelmed in a positive way, yeah. Jubilant, Jubilant that's a great word, thank you. Free. Free, yeah. Okay. Exhilarated, that's another lovely word, thank you very much. Okay, that's another piece of the pie. We've got a happy pie, we've got an excited pie. What about the word tender? This is another piece of the pie, this is a headline word, tender. Sensitive, okay, that's, that's good. Gentle, excellent. Fragile, loving, okay. Compassionate. You're getting better at this. That's great. Well done. Okay. Gracious. And then uh, we're going to move into some negative emotions. So the three top headline emotions are happy, excited, and tender. And happy, excited, and tender within themselves carry most of the emotions on what we call the top half of the wheel, the happy half of the wheel of emotions. Uh, they kind of express three sort of mood styles. Happy as being a sense of uh, contentment and uh, a sense of, of joy that's quite deep-seated. Excited as being really the giddy emotions that are orientated around, you know, jubilation and joy and ecstasy. And then tender are the gentle emotions. They're the quietly uh, joyful emotions. Shall I turn the heating on again? People are a little cold. Yeah? Is that a good idea? There's an emotion here. It's not cold, it's sad. It's this thing about, we'll talk about physiological links to emotion a bit later on. So, they're the three happy, the three positive, the three upsides of the circle. And now let's Let's talk about the three down pieces of the pie. So we'll start with the most obvious one, which is the opposite of happy, which is sad. So let's use some descriptives for sad. Melancholy, that's a good word, it's an old word. Depressed. Tearful. Upset. Bleak. Miserable, okay. Right, now we're interesting, our disposition is beginning to change. 
So we, we're doing a cognitive experiment here, which is, this is in the brand of what we call neurolinguistic programming. I tell you a lot of positive words, you suddenly feel much better about yourself. And then we move into the negative side of the wheel, and I tell you lots of negative words, and you'll feel suddenly quite down. So I should have done it the other way around. I should have started with the negative emotions and then got into the positive ones, and we'd all be feeling upbeat at the end. So sad is the first piece of the negative side of the wheel, and then uh, in the middle is angry, which is the opposite to excited. The angry emotion is uh, described in what way? Apart from anger. Rage, excellent word. Bitter, good. Frustrated, excellent. Discontent, yeah. Vengeful, that's an excellent word. Intense, yeah, possibly, yeah. Poisonous, that's a good, that's a, again, you're good at these ones, these negative words. I've had a bad time recently. We also move into the color, into the color words. You know, we, we, we begin to use dis descriptions like blue uh, or red. Uh, and we, we, we invert those as well for, for happy in yellow and excited in kind of flashing lights. So angry is a, is a, it's a central emotion. It's an outline emotion. And, and the final emotion that makes up this wheel of emotions in the round is the scared emotion. Sounds like an interesting one to include, but it's a really, really important one, one we're going to be going back to throughout the course. What comes within the scared emotional realm? Anxious, excellent, thank you. Fearful. Lonely, well, lonely, yeah. lonely is an interesting one. That can all fall within, within the, the sad, the angry, and the scared. Some, some, some bleed through. Any other? Worried. Feeling weak, possibly, I and mean, that could, again, that's a bleeding emotion that kind of threatened. It's a good one. Excellent. Any others? Vulnerable. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. So, you know, th this idea of the wheel of emotion is 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 is, is helpful. It's a it's an outline idea, but but it really helps to divide up emotional wellness in 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 the round. Um, if this is the wheel, you know, it's a, it's a simple wheel. So, so we, we, we just have these three pieces of positive pi, three pieces of negative pi, happy here, and uh, angry here, and excited here, and tender here, and sad here. And my last one is scared. So we're trying to look at emotions in the round within the context of this course. As, we, as I say, it's just an introduction to emotional health. But, but actually engaging with all of these emotions, it becomes pertinent to ask the question, within our emotional selves, within our, uh, within our own emotional wellness, which area of the areas of these feel most threatening to you? Which areas of these feel most threatening to you? So I'm asking that question, and Mike has helpfully pointed out that context is really important to how and where we place our emotions. But, but equally, what I want to it, it sort of help us to understand is this idea of us as being emotional vessels. Now, obviously, many of these emotions are very, very evident within us, 
but um, some of them will maybe an a a slightly alien to us. They might be slightly strange to us, or they in and of themselves might feel threatening. So I want you to just imagine in the context of your own private space, which of these emotions uh, do you find easiest to express? Some of this will come down to character type and personality style, which again we'll be talking about slightly later on in the course. But this is what we're kind of engaging with, is this idea of some of us will find it quite intimidating being around excited people. Are you one of the calm down, calm down kind of a people? Are you, do you find it difficult being around giddy people? Does it feel a bit unsafe to you, like something dangerous or uncomfortable might be happening? If so, it might well be that uh, there's, there's some of this going on, that actually we are fearful of what we cannot control, what, we, what we're not quite sure uh, what to expect. Are tender emotions uncomfortable to you? I know um, in some of the generations above us, people come see me quite often and they tell me things like, you know, my dad never told me that he loved me and that's, been, that's a real pain to me. And actually it wasn't because he didn't love the person involved, but he himself struggled with the tender emotions, certainly verbalising them. And there were generations before us which were kind of stiff upper lip, you know, don't demonstrate any emotion. I remember dads at school um, who, you know, in the car park would shake their young son's hands. My dad's Dutch. He doesn't do those sort of things. He kind of wraps you up in a big embrace and gives you a really slobbery kiss on the cheek, and then you have to sort of embarrassingly walk away and go, oh, dad. You know? <laughs> but, 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 you know, how we respond, how we've experienced emotions in the family, maybe how we've experienced emotions in the relationships we've had, will affect how they're expressed in our own lives. And, and there's no kind of level of critique here. There's no level of judgment here. This isn't about saying, oh, well, because you're particularly good at expressing a happy emotion, that makes you a better person than someone who's, who's good at expressing a, a negative emotion like anger. Because all of these emotions are valid and important. And one of the dangers here is the idea that actually all we want is a top half circle of emotion. This is all that's acceptable. What, what we want to say to you is actually that, that all of the emotions in the round, all of the headline emotions and their subsidiary emotions are important, valuable, and necessary parts of what it is to be a growing person. So some people will feel like they're the angry person. Actually, it's not that they're the angry person, it's that the expression, the expression of emotional anger is particularly dominant at a particular time. But actually, denying anger can make us a very secretly angry person, so we can become a very moody person and we can become a kind of very held-in person. Uh, expressing anger appropriately is, is, is a gift, and anger is the opposite of happy, something that we really need for emotional wellness. Sorry, Kate. Why don't you use the terminology Well, it, what we're talking about here is, is that we use just the term negative emotion in terms of how it makes us feel. Do we want to feel sad? Uh, do we want to feel angry? Do we want to feel scared? No, it's not a judgment. It's just this idea that actually these give us something and these sometimes take something away from us. But that doesn't mean to say that they actually they should be written off. And you know, obviously the danger we talk about, if we talk about the negative side of emotions, the, the, the minus emotions is actually that people then try and hide them away. Mike? Y yes, okay, we, that's helpful. There are some people who seem to enjoy being angry. Um, I'll probably reframe that slightly, Mike, and say that there's some people who, who have learnt to use anger uh, as a mechanism which gives them certain gains. Sometimes, again, there's a, there are question marks about how, how much they, um, 
they really like to use it and how much they use, they, it's become a mechanism by which they can exert control on themselves or on other people. And we're going to talk a little bit about that a bit further down the line as well. Great. So this is what we're looking for, if you like, in the main. As an emotional person, how are you doing right now? A little cold still. The heating's on. Um, but thinking about yourself and begin to think about some of these emotions that we're expressing, I, I, I tend to think, uh, unless we've actually fully engaged in the emotional circle, we can find ourselves <clears throat> using a very, very neutered and very, very sort of diminished emotional vocabulary. Um, and, and I want to challenge you all to say, when you're asked, how are you doing, how many of us say, I'm okay? And I just want to point out that okay isn't on this emotional circle. Okay, okay, in my view, is not an emotion, and okay should be banned. So I'm going to put it in a box down here. So we ask, we, we say, how do you feel? I feel okay. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. How are things going? They're going okay. Okay isn't, isn't an expression. It's not an emotional expression. It's, 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 it's just something else. It's something completely amorphous. And I think, you know, it might sound grand, but it might sound like what we're trying to do is improve the world. You know, this isn't just a, a mission to improve ourselves, but imagine a world where we had a more complete emotional expression. Imagine a church when we had a more complete emotional expression. Imagine a workplace where there was a more complete emotional expression. Imagine relationships where there was a more complete emotional expression. So growing up with emotions is what this course is all about. It's about saying, actually, who am I? How am I doing? How am I managing my emotions? And how can I go on to grow? How can I grow through this? Tonight is an introduction to emotions. Next week, we're going to look at the past and how the past has influenced our emotions. The week after, we're going to be looking at the present and asking the question, how are our emotions stuck here? And then in the final week, in week four, we're going to be looking to the future and saying, how can my journey continue from here? How can I develop and grow further? And I hope and I pray that all of these things will have a benefit for you in your interpersonal relationships, in your opportunity of getting employment, in your interactions in the church setting, uh, interactions in the street, even the way you drive your car. That might sound quite grand, and that's my anticipation, that's my hope. Ultimately, the work all comes from you and from the attitude that you bring into the room tonight. So it, 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 the work comes from you. I'm just a guide for some of the journey. Great. Now, we're going to do some work on psychology. I want you just to stand up for a minute, if you, if you, if you can. And um, whilst you're standing up, I want you to ask yourself the question, why did I just stand up? <laughs> why did I just stand up? Now, I would like you to sit back down. Excellent. Good to see there's some free thinkers in the room. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, psychology asks us a question, it responds to the question, why do we do what we do? And theology, I believe, responds to the question, what can we do about the things that we've done? So psychology asks, why do we do what we do? And theology says, what can I do about the things that I've now done? Psychology can't actually help us to change the things that we've done. Only theology can do that. But 
theology, psychology is a helpful guide to the workings or the application of uh, the, the theology that we need. That's why at Mind and Soul we've combined good theology with, with, within good psychology. And if you think about it a little bit like this, this is, you know, these, are, these are kind of broad brushstrokes, but if I'm in search of some rare mineral within the earth, psychology could be understood as being the torch by which I shine on the walls of this tunnel to find the mineral, the mineral I'm looking for glowing in the darkness. But Christian theology, on the other hand, is the axe that can be used to mine the particular mineral that we're looking for. So theology is a, a tool and an application, and psychology is a guide and it's an illumination to what we need. That's why we're going to be engaging with it on this basis tonight. And I'd like to say that we are all folk psychologists. That is that we all predict and view other people's behavior and we qualify it. So you will all have a view about your particular working space. There will be one particular employee that you think is very happy at the moment. There's another that's very frustrating. There's one that's always angry. And you will make classifications about the people that you work with, and you will respond to them differently because you are a folk psychologist. And there are what we call meta-theories of psychology. They are biological, behavioral, existential, socio-cultural, psychoanalytical, and cognitive. And these are big schools of psychology which have looked at different aspects of human behavior and tried to help people to understand why they do what they do. Now, you don't need to remember all of these, apart from understanding that most of the principles that you're going to hear are related to the school of cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, it's, we'll also be referring to some simple ideas from the psychodynamic school as well. But all of the models, including the biblical insights, are here to help us to gain a greater sense of emotional awareness. And that will in turn lead us to challenge or to accept our thinking more objectively and to inform our behaviors for the better. So... I want you to, in your mind, just identify something about me in the psychological. So I want you to try and qualify me as your guide and try and identify what sort of a person you think I am from your experience thus far. If you just come here tonight, you're in the perfect position to do this. And if you know me for a long time, then you're, this isn't going to be so helpful for you. But just think about the sort of classification that you apply to another person. Why do I do what I do? And you could ask yourself, why am I doing what I'm doing now? Now, what I'd like to do is to try and discuss with your neighbor why you think I'm doing what I'm doing now, why you think I do what I do. What sort of a person you think I am? Uh, I, I, this isn't a self-ingratiating experience, so I'm not going to ask you all for feedback at the end, because I might get lots of negative feedback. But, but just, just in, in buzz groups, just for a couple of minutes, think about this idea of the science of psychology. How do we begin to determine what a person is like and what sort of emotional state a person is in and why a person does what they do? Let's, let's have a little go at that. Just in twos or threes, um, maybe introduce yourself to the person next to you. Hey, you, you might have... You might have begun to formulate some of, some of your ideas. Um, because I don't want your feedback <laughs> about me, because it's, uns it's unsafe and it's making me feel scared, which is one of the emotions I was describing in the circle. I, I, I'd suggest that you might think that because I'm a vicar, I've got a compassionate desire for meeting the needs of the world and the community. That might be one of the things you came across. Uh, you might... Um, you might, have thought that, you might have thought, I must be emotionally in a bad place to want to run a course about emotional health and well-being. Might have been one of the things you thought. 
Uh, you might have thought that I'm just particularly interested in this and I'm, I'm academic and like the sound of my own voice. You might have thought all sorts of things uh, about why I'm doing this, but you will, have, you will have made those decisions based on what you've seen me do, how I am physically and emotionally before you at this time, my disposition, uh, the tone in my voice, uh, the level of exuberance I'm demonstrating before you, the level of confidence I'm showing you, and all sorts of subconscious clues. You are all folk psychologists, and you're, you're active in this work of folk psychology all the time. Now, I think folk psychology is really helpful. In fact, it's a human gift. And the work of psychology shouldn't be just given over to professionals as if they're the only people who do that work. We should all learn to develop how to understand ourselves and other people better in order that we can interact better with other people. And actually, if I believe that the, the, the person who demonstrated the greatest emotional wholeness of any single person in the history of the world was Jesus Christ. And many people think that Jesus Christ just walked around and was shiny and happy all of the time. But actually, if you read the Bible, he demonstrates the complete circle of emotions. He was at times terribly scared. At times, he was uh, extremely sad. Uh, at times, he was incredibly excited. Uh, at times, he was amazingly happy and, and awesomely tender. You know, he, he demonstrated uh, emotions in the round. And, um, and so, he, if you like, he's our model. Uh, to, to look forward and say, actually, how might we be in his image? How might we uh, journey towards this level of discipleship where we can understand ourselves in the round? Now, what I want to say to you is that, is that we can live two ways. We can live reactively or we can live reflectively. So there's two aspects, there's two ways of living at this point. There's reactive living and there's reflective living. And we tend to live life forwards if we're a reactive person, reacting to our experiences, our relationships, and our circumstances in what I call the natural form. And the natural form is just the form, the uneducated or the undisciplined form within which we all come. So in the natural form, people say things like, oh, I, I just did it, or I couldn't help it, or that's always how I act, or that's just how I am. And sometimes people get very angry when they come on a course like this, especially if they've been dragged here by a friend. Because it's like, look, if you don't like me the way I am, then, you know, fine, don't be my friend anymore. But don't take me to some course where they try and, like, change me or develop me. Because it just demonstrates you don't really like me. You know, that's a kind of, that, that's, that's a, what we call a manic defense. It's a big defense against someone who doesn't want to change. But also it, it demonstrates a kind of a safety in the reactivity of life. If I'm a reactive uh, skier, I, I basically put my skis on and I feel the pull of gravity and I point my skis down the mountain and I just go. Uh, and I just, I just kind of react to the terrain as I hit it. Now, that's all well and good if I'm very proficient and I happen to have aimed myself down the right piste. But if, if I've pointed myself down the edge of a cliff and I've just started skiing reactively, responding to the cliff, which is 150 feet deep, when I've already left the cliff is not particularly helpful for me. But many people in life live their lives very reactively, and some younger people particularly can struggle like this. Life's not dealt me a good deal. I'm reacting to it. This has been tough. I'm reacting to it. I'm getting more and more angry. My emotions are becoming kind of more and more out of control. I'm, they're less applied and less reflected, and therefore I'm kind of, life has become quite turbulent. Now, a, re a reflective emotional response is one which is 
beginning to move from natural form into an illuminated form. Natural form being the, the, sort of the, the state in which we come, and the illuminated form is the, the reflective view. It's the, it's the ability to look at our circumstances and our experiences in the round and begin to know yourself. If, the 11th, if there was an 11th commandment, it would be know thyself. You know, if we're going to work together well as people, as friends, as people in relationships, and as a church, knowing ourselves is really helpful. You'll know you're a folk psychologist when you say things like, oh, the problem isn't really with that person. The problem's in there. They're just having a go at that person because they feel angry inside. Now, that's actually quite a complex piece of, theolo- of psychology that's just taken place there, and it's probably very insightful. But it's that, that kind of work. It's when you're saying those kind of things that you're moving into, into a more illuminated range. And it's particularly mature when we begin to say those things about ourselves. It's when we apologize to our wife and say, you know what, I'm sorry I had a go at you earlier. It totally wasn't about what you did. I just had a really bad day at work and I was feeling really stirred up about something that so-and-so said to me at the water cooler at half past 11. You know, that, that is us applying this well for the benefit of relationships. Now, if we think about how we process information, this is just a, a general run. How do you process information? Well, what happens first in, in this journey is that we experience a stimulus. Something happens, uh, maybe there's uh, you know, a loud bang from out there on the balcony where Ruth is. Now, we hear the stimulus, as a, uh, that's the loud bang, and immediately we respond to it. We begin to ask questions about what it means. What's the meaning of the stimulus? Now, some of you are thinking that the kettle has blown up. Others of you are thinking that Stuart and Miriam are here already blowing up balloons for their wedding on the weekend and one of those has burst. Someone else thinks that the dodgy electrics at St. Peter's Church are fused again. We've all, we're all identifying different meanings to the stimulus, depending on our views and experiences. And interestingly, if we're feeling particularly happy, we might have a balloon idea in our minds. If we're feeling particularly anxious, we might be thinking about the electrics. If we're feeling particularly scared, then we might be thinking uh, about the kettle blowing up. You know, depending on our emotional state, our view of the meaning will change. And you know this is true. Why? Because what happens when you're at home, alone, at half past 11 at night on a windy day, and you've gone to sleep, but now you've woken up? What happens? Who can describe it to me? Anita? Great. So at half past 11 at night on a windy night, you're on your own, everyone's out of the house, you start hearing noises. There's a creaking on the stairway, there's a tapping on the window. Uh, immediately your adrenaline starts rising. The stimulus is these noises, but the meaning is completely different at half past 11 or 1 in the morning than it is at 10 in the morning. It's a windy day, there's a tapping on the window, there's a creaking on the floorboards, you feel absolutely fine. Why is it in the middle of the night that when you hear those same stimuluses, the meaning is completely different? After we explore the meaning, then we begin to think about possible responses. So then we start thinking, what are we going to do with what we now know? What are we going to do? Are we going to go out on the balcony and see if everything's all right? Are we going to sit here and presume that someone else is sorting it out? Are we going to get out of bed with our torch and shine it through the windows and try and see what's going on? And then we execute our response, finally. Then we actually do what we've decided to do with the information available to us. So then we go and get our torch, or we actually do go out on the balcony. This simple, these four simple steps outline everything that goes on. Everything that we experience as a person is done on the basis of those four simple steps. And we execute those, whether it's only in a, in a cognitive way, within the thoughts of our mind, or in an active way. We execute those day in, day out, every day of our lives. Now, 
it would be straightforward if we just executed those from a neutral perspective, as in if we just did what we, saw, what we thought was the best thing to do all of the time for the best outcome for ourselves and for everyone else. But of course, the reality is that, that whilst we might take these one, two, three, four steps, behind these steps is something we call bias. Now, when we think about this, this is the character, this is the personality, this is, these are the, this is the emotional literacy that we all carry that affects how we view meaning, how we understand meaning, and what our possible responses are, and how we execute our responses. So imagine, just to illustrate a bang for you, how are your emotions right now? On edge? Scared? It's broken even, look, terrible, shh, don't tell the church wardens. Now, imagine I'm at the water cooler, and along comes Sue, and Sue has got a bit of a sour-looking face on, but we're normally friends. Now, Sue goes up to the water cooler, and, 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 and I'm standing there, you know, having a drink, looking for her to look at me so I can say, hi, how are you doing? But rather than looking at me, she, she seems to deliberately turn her shoulder to me, fills up her glass, turns around and walks back to her desk. Now, the stimulus in that experience is an interaction with Sue that doesn't actually happen. But the meaning of the meeting, the meaning of the non-meeting, could be interpreted several ways. Let's have some ideas from the floor. She's got the hump. Thank you. She's got the hump. Now, this is important. Let's take this a little bit further. Who she's got the hump with? She's got the hump with me. Okay, let's, let's think about some other possible uh, meanings to this interaction. She's had a bad day. Okay, there are, there are others here. Oh, so she wants something from me. She wants me to kind of go and talk to her and find out if she's okay. That's a very, that's a very good way of working. Excellent. Um, other things. She's got something on her mind. She didn't even see you. She didn't even know you were there. Now, let's take those four ideas a little bit further. Now, if I was completely objective <clears throat> and I looked at this particular pattern of, of outlooks, the most, I want, if I have not done anything to Sue, and I can't imagine anything that I might have done or said in the last 48 hours to upset Sue, what is the most likely reason, what's the most likely meaning for her having turned her back on me? The most likely. She doesn't want to talk to anyone, okay? Or potentially, she hasn't noticed that I'm actually at the water cooler. You see, if there's no reason for her to have the hump with me, because I've not done anything wrong, the likelihood is, the greatest probability is that she, she's not got the hump with me. However, what would bias say? What's the most natural conclusion that you will come to at that water cooler on that day? Exactly, that you've upset her, that she's got the hump with you, which is the first response that we had. And you all go, yeah, of course she's got the hump with you. Because we're essentially egocentric. We, you know, we, we read everything through the lens of our own understanding and relationships. Ultimately, we all believe that we must have done something wrong to upset Sue. Now, I know people who would spend days racked with ag agonizing pain 
over whether or not Sue was upset with them. And then finally they would text Sue and say, Sue, are you all right? Have you got the hump with me? And then Sue would text back going, no, don't be weird. And then they'd feel kind of like embarrassed. Uh, oh no, I mean, this is crazy. But this is totally normal human behavior. We've all done this. We all carry this idea about bias because we all personally view the world orientated to our experience. It's not natural and normal to us to be empathetic to the point where we can say, Sue probably had a really tough day at work and she just didn't, she just didn't see me. Because we don't believe that's the most likely outcome. Now, behind me making this great explanation is something called Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Now, I don't want to blind you with any of this psychology, but Maslow basically created a pyramid, and on it he, he divided the pyramid into sections, and he ultimately said that we tend to do everything and work everything out on the basis of our human need. Now, you could say that our experience at the water cooler is that our need for human interaction, our need for human betterment, if you like. So every reaction and interaction we participate in is orientated around a hierarchy of needs. Now, I, I, you don't need to write this stuff down, but at the very bottom are, are physiological needs. They are breathing, water, food, going to the toilet. They are essential needs. Uh, up the scale from there, there is safety. So the security of the body, the in, in, in employment, resources, morality, the family, health and property, they're all those sort of needs. And then the next scale up, there's love and belonging, friendship, family, intimacy. And then above that, there's esteem, confidence, achievement, respect from others and by others. And then at the top, there is the self, which is morality, creativity, spontaneity, problem solving, lack of prejudice, acceptance of fact. Now, Maslow's hierarchy of needs ultimately says that behind all of our behaviours are the desire for the betterment in all of those particular areas. If you think about it, it's, just, it's quite annoying, isn't it, when you're trying to listen to someone talking for a long time. You just really need the toilet. It's a simple human function. And actually, there's a level of discussion that's going on within the mind immediately, thinking, how much do I really need to go? Oh, no, I don't need to go enough. I'm going to stay, stay put. But then a little later on, after another coffee, you're thinking, no, I really need to go now. Now, the hierarchy of needs moves uh, through the physiological kind of setting, becomes very, very important very quickly as you kind of rush off to the loo, even though there's a lot to keep you in the setting. That's a very simple explanation of how the needs are understood within our context. But if you think about the more developed needs, the idea about creativity and, and spontaneity, <clears throat> these are more subtly read in our environment and relate to our emotions. <clears throat> so we could say, for example, that with Sue, our desire for relationship, our need for relationship is being challenged. And we want to restore that relationship, which means we focus on what might have gone wrong with Sue for hours and hours and hours after uh, our negative event at the water tower, which actually means that we neglect our husband, we forget our children, we go to bed but we don't sleep, and all because one of our needs has been challenged. It's our need for relationship. Now, what we would say from a psychological point of view is that we're designed to desire the best of everything. And there's something behind this which is called a drive reduction theory. Now, we have drives which relate to these needs, and we constantly want to work to reduce those drives. 
So we're driven to fulfill our physiological need for food. And you know what it's like when you're really hungry and you pass McDonald's? It's just so tempting, isn't it? You can almost feel the steering wheel turning into that drive-through. You have to kind of physically correct it to go straight. You know, we have to like we have a drive reduction, and ultimately we have to go home, make some toast, and eat it to reduce our our drive for food. Some people have a very very high sex drive. Now, within the context of relationship, uh, that can be totally appropriate and safe. But for lots of 19-year-old young men who come into my office, it feels very unsafe. And there's this drive reduction theory taking place. How do, I, how do I keep a hold of this without it kind of getting completely out of control? And then within settings like the church, there can be the drive, for example, to esteem, the drive to get respect from others and by others. That can lead to all sorts of interesting behaviors. Can I read the Bible from the front? Show everyone I'm a respected person. You know, how, what can I do to make it look like I'm a respected member of the church or the community or whatever it is we're part of? What I'd say is that all of us have this drive reduction theory taking place within us, this desire to reduce drives. But I want to set this within Christian theology and say that actually lots of this is what, Adam, what, what we call the old man, the broken parts of ourselves, that actually that God has created us whole and with complete emotion and without significant brokenness, the sense that, that actually we, we, we've been created in his image without the need to constantly fight these out-of-control emotions. But actually as humans who are struggling with ourselves, we find ourselves constantly on this battle. And St. Paul says, you know, what I want to do, I do not do, but what I don't want to do, I do. He's talking about drive reduction theory. He's thinking the things that I shouldn't be doing, they overpower me and I find myself steering off the road. And the things, that, the things I don't want to do, I find myself totally leaning towards. So the human experience is one of going through stimulus and meaning and response and response executed, but we do this all with a bias towards ourselves because we want to have certain needs fulfilled. And emotions have three components Subjective experience, I feel sad, angry, happy, etc. Psychological response, my, sorry, physiological response, my heart rate, rate raises, I feel tired, I feel adrenaline. And then thirdly, uh, an expressive component, my posture, my face, my words, my outlook, they all change. So when we're on a, you know, when we've been driven, if you like, behind us by Maslow's pyramid of needs, through life's experience, it can all become quite a heady outworking. And we can find ourselves expressing emotions as we're struggling with these different parameters. You know, emotions in context can be tough. They can be hard. Now, why don't you just have a little breather, mental breather, for just uh, two or three minutes, just to quietly think about those needs. And if you were going to identify within yourself some physiological needs that you have, that you, you need to have addressed... Do you have a particular appetite? Do you have a desire for exercise? What, 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 what the, which needs are powerful in your life? And then in your workplace, which, which needs are important to you in the workplace? What are you seeking from the workplace? And then in relationships, what are you looking for in your relationships? What needs do you carry? And then finally, for yourself, what do you think your emotional needs are? And ask yourself, what, are the key, what key needs do you feel mark you out as a person? This, this can be, just, just allow whatever comes to the surface to come to the surface. Don't try and sort of pressurise. Just say, 
What needs, what needs do I feel I carry as a person? Just spend a couple of minutes just allowing that to settle on you. Yeah, sure. So uh, just, just a sort of rough outline, Maslow's pyramid hierarchy of needs. So physiological is the lowest one. That's the sort of very physical things. Safety is the next one. Then love and belonging is the next one. Then esteem is the next one. And then what Maslow calls self-actualization, but that's really you know, a strong sense of personality is, is the top one, the fulfillment of the self, yes. Yeah. It's a, it's a really good, really good question. Again, it, if we go back to the emotional charts, it would depend on w what we're talking about, which is their personality. You know, what what drivers and emotions feel really unsafe for them. So, for example, if if someone felt that anger was really unsafe or being unresolved with regard to anger, if they'd experienced you know, anger as being an unsafe emotion through mood, then someone being in a mood or someone appearing to give them the cold shoulder causes a huge amount of anxiety. And so as they're trying to resolve that, uh, you know, that, that drive reduction to, you know, to that discomfort, they, they try and resolve it so they can have peace. It's very often not to do with Sue, it's to do with them. So they don't really feel, they don't feel terrified that Sue is upset or hurting, they feel terrified that Sue is upset and hurting with them. So it's, it's again, it's what we talk about, it's this egocentricity about the human, the human character. <clears throat> now I, I would want to bring in the idea to, to, to all of us here that, that actually Maslow's hierarchy of needs is, is self-determined but most of us here tonight are Christian people, and actually our response to Maslow's hierarchy of needs is not just about us being self-determined people. It's actually about God and God determining how we live, and actually God welcoming us in fullness as people. So uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is an interesting concept, and, and it reflects you know, sensible needs within the human spirit, but it denies the fact that over, over Maslow's hierarchy of needs are the needs and the requirements of a living and holy God. And actually how we live and how we respond to need is not just determined by our own whims and wiles. It's not determined by just by what we want and how much we want it. It's also determined by God and what God's actually saying about it. So as Christian people, our experience of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, for example, in the physiological, the need for sex would maybe look slightly different to that within a context where the determination of God isn't applied. You know, when it comes to uh, receiving self-esteem or the respect of others, we might view that slightly differently as Christian people in terms of understanding God as giving us value and esteem as our Heavenly Father rather than needing to glean it or gather it from the workplace. So I hope that you've been able to identify a couple of needs that you have. The likelihood is that the needs that you've identified might be quite the, the stronger needs that you tend to express. Um, and we talk about these in terms of character styles. So when we identify strong needs in ourselves, people from the outside would often describe us being a certain sort of person. 
And there's a theory called bioenergetics that I quite like, which has a, has a five-fold person typology. Uh, it begins with the wizard, and the wizard's little withdrawn, doesn't like to be over-embraced, highly analytical, resolves work very well. The poet type two character, which is me, loves to be loved and um, you know, wants to be in relationship as a primary course of action. And then the superhero type three is a kind of real go-getter, real grabber. And there's the good parent type four who likes to be responsible all the time. And then there's the warrior type five who has got to kind of focus on the horizon and, and kind of like brings people together for a project. So there's, there's typologies, Myers-Briggs is one of these, which kind of begins to ask the questions, what are our needs? And actually, how do the needs that we have shape or define our characters? The easiest model, I think, is, is the threefold model, which was adventurers, carers, and processors. And I want you to apply this to yourself uh, in the uh, work that we're doing tonight. So <clears throat> just taking your first instinct tonight. Imagine we're going on a cruise. Now, adventurers just care about the, where the cruise is going. So if you're going to the travel agent and you're going to buy a cruise, do you care about where your cruise is actually going? Is the first question you ask, where are we going on this cruise? And, and when are we going to get there? Is the destination the most important thing to you? So that's the adventurers. Now, the processors, they want to know what stops you're making on the journey. They want to know what the restaurants are like on the boat. And they want to know what sort of entertainments are going to keep them going uh, throughout the two arduous weeks that, the weeks that they're on the boat for. So the processors want to know where, how are you going to get from A to B, how comfortable it's going to be, and what's going to happen on the journey. And finally, the third group, the carers, they don't care where you're going. They don't care what the entertainment's like or what the stopover's like. They just care about who they're going with. So they want to know, who's coming with me? Is it going to be a load of my mates? Is it going to be just me on my own? Uh, is it going to be like five people, ten people? Am I going to know 20 people on the boat? So the carers just care about the relationship. Now, what I want to say is that these are obviously like hard categories. We always have one major one, and we often have a secondary, but we very rarely ever have the third. So if you apply this into your workplace, the processors drive the adventurers absolutely nuts. Because the, the adventurers are saying, this is where this business is going. In 10 years' time, we're going to be the largest FTSE 100 company ever. All of the processors come around and go, really? Do you really think so? Because we've got a whole lot of work to do before we get there. And actually, how are we going to get there? And how are we going to get there? And how are we going to get there? And the, the adventurers are going, oh my goodness, this is ridiculous. We're just going to get there. Now, in all this, the carers are finding the adventurers really aggressive and really sort of self-determined, and they will walk over anyone to get there. So the carers are going, oh, I don't like this idea. People are going to get hurt. People are going to lose their jobs. You know, this is really uncomfortable. What we really need is a happy and a friendly workplace to make sure that we hit our productivity levels well. Identify yourself. Are you an adventurer? Are you a carer? Or are you a processor? And if you have a secondary, are you a caring adventurer? Are you a caring processor? Are you an adventuring processor, of which there are probably none? How does it work out? <laughs> OK. Think about how you, how you function. Now, what we'd say was when you ask yourself about need, your need emotionally and your personality style interlink. So, for example, if my emotional need is to be loved, then I'm highly likely to be a dominant relationship person. I'm a carer. So I, I, I receive a benefit from a personality style. 
Ultimately, if I want relationship as my inner need, I create an environment where I glean relationship. But if success and uh, receiving the esteem of others is my need, I very often find a goal on the horizon and I'll get there to be esteemed by others. Uh, if actually keeping a life in order and making my world safe is my need, I'm very likely to become a processor because on my journey of process, I keep everything safe. So our needs and our personality styles interact. And that isn't a problem. There's nothing derogatory about anything that I'm saying. It's all absolutely fine. The key thing is, if we're going to interact well together, understanding ourselves and our drives and our needs has a direct impact on the people that we work around with. So I'm, I'm, I'm a carer, adventurer, who's married to an adventurer processor. Now, we link very much on the adventure idea, but my wife is definitely a processor, and the processor bit of her and the adventurer bit of me slightly like rub up against one another. So I'll be like, great, we're going to do this new initiative at church. It's going to be amazing. And she'll say, hmm, darling, have you thought this through properly? Have you thought about this, 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 and this? And I'll be going, oh, don't worry about the detail. And she'll be saying, no, we must worry about the detail. And then she'll say, because people might get hurt. And that immediately will spark up my carer instinct. And then her carer instinct will also spark up. And then we'll go, yes, we need to talk about this for the sake of the people. Okay? So, if we understand ourselves and our character styles, we understand them in the context of our needs. And all of this fits together neatly with this idea that we have need and we're searching for our need to be fulfilled. Our emotions reflect our need. And actually understanding our emotions in the full is about understanding our needs and our personality styles at play. Why certain emotions might have become unsafe and why other emotions might have become safe. So if you apply emotions in their strengths and weaknesses to our personality styles, you can see why someone who is a carer might struggle more with the emotion of anger in outward expression. Because if your modus operandi is to care all the time, when you are very angry, it can be unsafe to the relationships that you want to keep. So you can actually internalize your anger, push it down and invert it. That's something we call intropunitive hostility, to coin a long word. All it means is your anger that should be helpfully directed outside is turned around and pushed inside. Because actually, it challenges your need for relationship to express your anger outwards to the person you're really angry with. I do a lot of marriage coaching and counselling, and quite often we'll find a relationship where the husband is actually furious with the wife. But if you ask him how the relationship's going, he'll go, oh, it's brilliant. I love her so much. It's wonderful. Everything's just amazing. And she'll have no problem with anger and say, actually, I'm really angry with him. He's behaving really badly. And he'll go, oh, but she's so wonderful. Nothing is wrong. Now, what's happening here is that the carer is so fearful about damaging the relationship that he's turned all the anger that he actually appropriately feels inside. He's pushing it down. And actually, the wife is suffocating because of his lack of emotional expression help him to turn that around and be more authentic and begin to bring the emotion into the relationship, actually you can work out what's going wrong. So you can see in your own relationships, in your own work context, how is your bias affecting you? So if we apply to bias this idea of what are our primary needs and what are our primary character styles, the bias then suddenly makes sense. 
Because the buyer says that depending on our character style or need, we will interpret meanings or we will decide responses for reasons more important than the stimulus itself. So we go back to Sue at the water cooler. Why do we interpret Sue as having the hump with us? Because actually our need, our buyer says we need relationship with Sue and actually Sue must have the hump with us. That's our primary threat. That's our primary fear. Is this starting to make sense? Is anyone really lost and need help? Yeah, you're lost. Okay, we'll chat. So, what, this is a broad introduction to emotions, but it helps us, it can help us to begin to ask bigger questions. How do we become objective about ourselves? How do we begin to mature, to find more realistic meanings to the experiences that we have? We become self-aware, we become self-knowing, and we start to apply, as you'll see in week two and three, new appraisals to the thing that we're thinking. So, for example, if I'm someone who has really strong ambition, then my desire to kill everyone else who's got strong ambition in my workplace doesn't become something that I begin to work out with a response executed. It's something that actually I begin to become aware of, and I start saying to myself, I'm actually quite an ambitious person, and my natural response, my normative style, would be to actually try and eke that person out of this work setting to give myself preeminence. But actually, I'm not going to do that. I don't need to do that. Actually, it wouldn't be right for me to do that. I can feel it within me, but I'm going to respond differently in this setting. I'm going to change. I'm going to make a new appraisal. And um, mind and soul, we're effectively cognitive behavioral therapy based, which means that we think that there's a link between our cognitions, there are thoughts, our behaviors, there are actions. And so what we're saying is you can therapize, you can change your thoughts, and therefore you can change your actions. And all of the knowledge that I've just given you so far tonight will fundamentally change your outlook if you've never heard it before. That's exciting to me. It doesn't matter if you've understand it, uh, understood it really well or not particularly well. Something that I will have said tonight will have actually changed your self-awareness to the point that when you go to work tomorrow, you'll be standing by the water cooler thinking about Sue. And thinking about, actually, how am I being in this workplace? What is my character style? And what are my needs? And how am I hoping to have those needs fulfilled? The thing is that this idea of actually affecting change to our behaviors through changing our thoughts is a biblical principle. Cognitive behavioral therapy is a, is, is a biblical tool. In Proverbs 14.29, it says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. That's a really helpful verse. Proverbs 14, 29. He's saying, whoever's slow to anger has great understanding. He's not saying whoever doesn't have anger has great understanding. He's saying whoever's slow to anger. Now, what he's saying is actually they have great understanding because their anger develops slowly and appropriately. Yeah? So they've got great understanding in the management of their anger. Anger is a good and God-given emotion. But in the slow development of that anger, they are developing a realistic outcome, a realistic view to a stimulus. But the person who is hasty in temper exalts folly. So the person whose need is to exert power and authority over others and basically flash pan angers everyone in submission is an idiot. That's what the Bible's saying. 
They're exalting folly. Because what they're doing is they're letting, they're letting their emotions escape without actually connecting their brain. Do you ever think that? You know, engage brain, then speak. Don't engage mouth, then engage brain. Now, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. Supposed to, you know, this is proportions, it's for, for intent. Now, this whole idea of actually, this idea that actually by engaging our thoughts, we can change or we can, we can channel our emotions in more effective and helpful ways is a biblical principle. And, and as Christians, those Christians who are here, will know that actually it's not just a principle to help us, it's a biblical responsibility to help others. That actually as a church body, we're called to know ourselves in order that we can edify and encourage and bless. Imagine if in the church we were all using our uh, desire for need fulfillment in Maslow's hierarchy as our preeminent way of working. Can you imagine what it would like? It would be a disaster if everyone was trying to push themselves forward or, or everyone was trying to fulfill their relational needs in the congregation or everyone was trying to you know, uh, you know, be the preacher or everyone was trying to kind of exit the service early or shout out from the pews. You know, all these needs are dealt with in the context of the overbearing love of God. So, natural form becomes something which is moved into an illuminated form. And um, the Desert Fathers and the early monastics talked about the illumination of the Holy Spirit. So this whole work of self-knowing led them to sit on poles in the desert for 300 days at a time. It sounds ridiculous, we're not going to do it here at the Minor Soul Course. But this idea of self-knowing became a discipline and this contemplative prayer became a way of self-knowing. And in the scriptures that the, uh, David says, search me, O God, see if there's any anxious way within me. You know, search me, know my heart. And this searching is not about saying, oh God, if you could just go away and spend a few hours getting to know me, that would be really good. This, this sort of prayer is saying, oh God, search me, illuminate to me. Is there any offensive way within me? Is there, any, is there anything within me that needs to be dealt with? You know, illuminate it to me. Because the Scriptures also say that God knows us, every single hair on our head. So God doesn't need time spending sitting around getting to know us because he knows us already. But we need that time. And I'd say to you that in the 21st century, you know, we have a problem in that life is so fast, we never stop to say, how am I? How are you doing? How are you doing now? Are you exhibiting the emotion of boredom or confusion or anger? Or are you feeling content? Are there gentle emotions developing in you? And that leads me on to say, be gentle with yourselves. This exploration might seem a bit brutal, suddenly shining a light on that mind inside. We have to be gentle with ourselves as we're taking these steps forward. Now, the final section, just before we finish tonight, and I open the floor for some questions, is about recognising that we've said a lot about personality and style, but we need to understand something about fear if we're really going to move on in this course. Fear is fundamental to emotional health and understanding. And um, I wonder if, uh, if any of you have been to see the meerkats at London Zoo? <clears throat> any meerkat lovers here? Has anyone got any meerkat memorabilia or have got any insurance uh, cuddly toys? Insurance-based cuddly toys? No? Well, meerkats are an interesting pack animal, but they do a lot to help us to understand the emotions. 
And if you go to London Zoo, if you happen to be in the Serengeti and you saw some, a meerkat colony, what you'd see would be a burrow in the ground and meerkats doing one of three activities. Some meerkats would be productive, as in they would be harvesting food or hunting for something or other. Some meerkats would be involved in either play or rest. And you see the ones who are playing messing around a lot. They're very fun and funny if you watch them. And others will be lying in the sun by the entrance to the burrow, and some will be asleep in the burrow. But there will always be two or three meerkats who are standing on their back paws on top of the burrow looking out. Now, these three processes are fundamental because the three processes or the three functions in life are productivity, recovery, and security. Productivity, recovery, and security. Productivity is everything that you do that's productive. That is, any sort of work that you do, <coughs> any sort of relational interaction, anything that meets a need in your character style. That is a productive activity. Worship, church community, family, friends, all of your interactives, all of your interactions are, are um, in some way productive. If you sleep, which I hope you do, you're also engaged in a, in a restorative function, and that might be contemplation, that might be actual sleep, that might be personal hygiene, uh, it might be refueling. All of these things are about rest and restoration. But security is a fundamental part of your psychology and your physiology. And if you watch meerkats, both the play and the rest are overwhelmed by the security. So if there are meerkats asleep in the sand, and if there are meerkats playing with a ball, if the sentinels both squeak, every single meerkat in the colony will descend into the burrow. It doesn't matter what else is going on, all of the meerkats will go down into the ground all at the same time. Because security takes predominance over creativity and restoration. Now, I want to say to you all this is true in life, that your security systems will take predominance over all of your rest and all of your productivity. So what can happen in your life is attempts to keep yourself safe dominate and control other aspects of your life. And they take predominance over all of those aspects. So, for example, a while ago I spent some time with a man who was living in a one-bedroom flat, and he was a creative and gentle person. And yet he hadn't left that flat, I think, for several years, maybe four or five years. The reason was he was terrified of interactions with people outside of his house. It hadn't begun like that, but he felt anxious and then gradually he'd withdrawn. And so his security, his, his desire for security, had totally dominated and in part destroyed his life. And instead of being a creative and sociable person, he was now living as an agoraphobic in a small one-bedroom flat. Now that's a dramatic expression of something that we all will find happens to us one way or another. So we begin to exhibit full character in life, and yet those things that make us feel afraid begin to distort us and affect our emotions. So, for example, if we're thinking of this in a lighter sense, we'll discuss some of the, some of the typologies, but something called reaction formation. So, for example, if I'm, if I'm anxious or scared <clears throat> about being off with someone or someone being off with me, like Sue at the water cooler, 
if there's an angry person around who's been off with me in the past, I can be exceptionally nice to them, but I can be horrible to my wife or my children. So you say, John, how are you? How's it going, pal? How's it going, friend? Are you doing okay? And they go, yeah, I'm fine, thanks very much. So you can work for the goods of this relationship because effectively we're afraid of being off with John who's got a big temper and has made us feel intimidated in the past. It feels unsafe, so we overinvest. But actually with people who we love and who keep us safe, we underinvest. Uh, we can find ourselves engaging all sorts of behaviours that are kind of superstitious. And not walking on the lines in the road because we're afraid. But those sort of superstitions can affect our whole lives. Even spiritually, we can find that fear drives us. We can adopt certain behaviours in church because we're afraid. We can be afraid of God. We can find ourselves you know, being unhelpfully afraid and distorting our behaviours and our outworkings because of fear. And, and, and I want to kind of help you to understand that your emotional spectrum will be impacted by fear whether you understand that, whether you recognise that or not. Fear impacts our behaviours. And uh, the psychoanalyst Freud, who you will have heard about, had a daughter you might not have heard of. She's called Anna Freud. And she believed that your characteristic way of defending yourself against your anxieties is the strong uh, determinant of your personality, the strongest determinant of your personality. So the way you defend yourself against your fears is one of the strongest determinants of your personality. So, for example, you know the shouty person in your office who's, like, really boisterous? Hey, mate! Hey, how's it going? Good weekend! Yeah, I had a real big one. That person. You know that person? Freud would say that that person is not this boisterous, super loud, overwhelming person. Actually, they're a terrified person who, by being overwhelming and by being over-exuberant, avoids the rejection that they fear. Because actually they're not asking you a question. They're not saying, how are you doing? Let's have a chat. Because that would invite rejection. Instead, what they're doing is they're overwhelming you. They're shouting out like through a tannoy. It's totally impersonal. Everyone in the office is hearing me right now, but no one has to respond. It's a defence. It's an ego defence. The people who are incredibly angry all the time, those angry people that Mike talked about earlier, the really angry people, what are they really afraid of? Of course, they're afraid of being rejected first. So what they do is they express their anger outwards all the time. So everyone's on the back foot all of the time, and people always try and make up with them to try and keep them sweet. The people who are moody all the time and silent. You know, I had one of these, my grandmother was a bit like this, a silent, moody person. Now, the silent, moody person is not naturally a silent, moody person, but the silent mood and the withdrawal makes people come up to you and say, are you all right? Are you doing okay? You see, it's an ego defense. It's a defense of the self. It's a way of combating our anxieties. And we will all carry a response to anxiety within us because anxiety and security are the predominant facet of the three features of being a human being, productivity, recovery, and security. There's different sorts. I'm just going to run through them quickly with you. Freud talks about the defenses. Repression, trying to forget that something has happened or someone has need of us. Or suppression, that's subconsciously holding it back. There's denial, refusing to accept a situation. Have you come across anyone like this? <clears throat> or have you, have you done this? I just deny it. I refuse that it's ever happened. And we see court cases like this. Very interesting. You know, I completely deny that I was even in the vicinity. 
You're, but you're there on the CCTV. I can see you walking around, waving at the camera. Oh, is that me? Denial. I'm not even there. Then there's projection. That's attaching your behavior to someone else. We will have all have done this. Are you angry with me? No? Oh. I'm angry with you, if I was going to admit it. Have you ever been asked that? Are you angry with me? Actually, you need to say, oh, you're obviously angry with me about something. You need to tell me what you're angry about. The person who's asking the question is the person who's angry, not the person who's receiving the question. That's called projection. Then there's rationalizing. That's when we create logical but incorrect uh, reflections on a situation. We're very logical about the situation. Well, such and such happened, and so and so got hurt, and such and such a thing. And then we demonstrate no emotion relative to what's actually happened. We, we rationalize it. Or we intellectualize it. And we, we, just, we just cut ourselves off from it. We say, oh, such and such and such and such. We make it factual. And then we do the reaction formation thing, doing the opposite of what we want to do. We, 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 we want to go out, but we stay in. We want to stay in, but we go out. And then we regress. We become quite childlike. Have you ever done this? Have you got a brother or sister? Christmas time, and uh, you know, there's conflict in the family. Me and my sister, we go on brilliantly most of the time, but sometimes it just doesn't really work for us. We were in London a little while ago, we were going out for a meal, and I said the wrong thing. Before you know it, we were both 14 year olds again. Well, she was 17, and I was 14. It's a painful place to be. We're suddenly like, you always do this, you always do that. I was like, hold on a minute, this is weird. You're nearly 40, and I'm in my late 30s. Let's just be grown-ups about this. Yeah, okay. We regress. So what we want to say is that if we're going to understand our emotions and grow forward, we need to recognize the impact that anxiety has on our choices, on our determinations. And I want to tell you all that you can live freer. You can live fuller. I have an anxiety disorder. That means that I've got a clinical diagnosis for something called GAD, and GAD is bad. Um, Generalized anxiety disorder tries to steal your life and your freedom and your emotions. But I live free because I'm hopefully working towards an emotional awareness, a, a self-awareness. And typically now what will happen is if I'm worried that I might have left my windows open or my door unlocked, I would rather be burgled than go back to check. So I just say, oh, I can't remember whether I locked the door or not but I'd rather be burgled than go back and become a slave to some sort of ritual for locking the door. My wife doesn't like that very much at all. But I think it works brilliantly. You know, overcome your anxiety to express yourself in fullness. Security is this dominant issue in our minds, and we often set out with well-intentioned behaviors, uh, which have served us well up to a point, but they become what we call maladaptive. So as a child, we might have hidden in a cupboard when we were afraid. And as a child, that was fine. But if we're 14, we're still hiding in the cupboard. That's kind of not fine. You know, our behaviors become maladaptive. If we, if, we, if we were a kid and we started fighting with people who frightened us, and we're 14, we're fighting with people who frightened us, we're going to go to prison. That's maladaptive. It's not okay. You know, and if we are suffocating or stealing a full spectrum of emotions because we're afraid, that's stealing something from us and from those around us. So if we are terrified of being giddy, or terrified of being angry, or terrified about being sad. You know, if we try and mute or qualify our emotions, if we try and strangulate them because we're afraid, that's not good for us. And it's not good for the people around us. So 
recognizing where we're anxious, recognizing where anxiety is, is impacting us can lead us to behaviors that are misshapen and distorted. The person who uses moods to control, the person who's quickly angry, the person who manipulates the group to create scapegoats, the person who talks all of the time, the person who serves all of the time. Now, these are all demonstrations of maladaptive behavior. And actually, they're behaviors that we need to address if we're going to grow up. The key thing is here that as a group, we're not scapegoating anyone. What we're acknowledging is that we've all got these sort of problems. We've, we all carry these kind of problems, and we want to grow up and grow through them. Now, CBT suggests that we've made our defense rules, and we're going to play the game of life with those rules. And those rules inform uh, the things that we feel and the things that we do. So we live by these kind of rules. Now, if I don't try, I won't fail. That's a common rule. If I don't try, I won't fail. Have you heard that one before? I'm anxious about failure, so I just won't try, and then no one can criticize me for failing. It's a maladaptive rule. It works, but of course, what happens to the person who doesn't try and doesn't fail? They don't succeed. If I look angry, I'll get what I want. It works quite well at the beginning, doesn't it? But actually, what happens to the person who looks angry all the time in terms of relations or friendship? Actually, they scare people in submission, and before long, they haven't got very many friends. If I stay quiet, people won't reject me. That's a, quite a common one. If I stay quiet, people won't, reject, you know, people won't reject me. Of course, stay quiet, no one's got the opportunity to reject you. So actually, relationships are, are ill-formed. You know, these are demonstrations of maladaptive behaviors because people have applied a life rule. Now, as a Christian leader, I want to say to you that actually, we believe that God has come set us free from the broken rules that we've applied to ourselves. That actually God hasn't created divinity in us. He's called us to be restored to full humanity. And, and, and I believe in the, the Bible says that we're, we're to be fully humanized, that actually we've dehumanized ourselves. We've been created in the image of, of, of God's Son, Jesus Christ, and we've been called into being. And actually that being is, a, is, is fully human, and that glorifies God. So our, our journey through this is identifying and recognizing how anxiety, how fear has impacted and challenged our emotional expression, and then begin to undo some of those paths and patterns. You've been really good and very, very attentive in, in listening, and we, we're nearly, our evening's nearly drawing to a close. This was an introduction to the emotions, and I hope that we've painted a broad picture. Some of it will come to you over the next 24 hours and make more sense, particularly when you see it in practice. Next week, we're going to be looking specifically at the past and asking questions about how our upbringing and our relationships have maybe influenced us and created some overexpression of emotions in some areas and underexpression in others. And we'll be looking at how we can walk free of some of the rules that I've just mentioned. And then we'll be applying those to the present and the future over the next uh, two consecutive weeks. In the last five or six minutes, are there any questions anyone would like to ask from the floor tonight? No, no question is, 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 you know, off limits. Might not answer everything, but in the last few minutes, are there any questions that anyone like anyone like to clarify anything that they've that they've heard? Remember, psychology is no exact science. It's a it's a science of broad brushstrokes. So we're just applying this broadly. Yeah, I will give you all a, a, a kind of handout. I I, I typically don't like like to use PowerPoint or or sheets in these sort of meetings because actually people focus on the sheets and, and we can get lost in the detail when actually what I want you to do is kind of get a, 
get a broad brushstroke, but I'll do a handout for you so you can, you can engage. Yes, dear? Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Self-actualization. Yeah, so within the idea of self-actualization, I mean, Maslow's, as I say, as Christian people, we would say that above self-actualization is God's determination, actually how we should live. But um, self-actualization is are the core concepts, core constructs of the psyche: morality, creativity, spontaneity, problem-solving, lack of prejudice, acceptance of fact. So self-actualization is about really growing to a full to full personhood. But self-actualization, I would kind of, I would challenge as a Christian person say, actually, God actualizes us in relationship with Himself. Actually, we don't, we don't become the finished product. I think obviously there's the end destination of psychology is not to create the perfect person, it's to understand a person. Jesus Christ is the person who can create, can lead us into perfection, if you like. Great. I think we'll call it a day there. It's uh, 25 past nine. It's good to finish on time and hopefully a little early. And uh, thanks all for coming. If this is the only session you come to. Uh, I'm thankful for you to come to this first session anyway, and I hope that you find the thoughts and ideas helpful for you over the next week, and we'll reconvene next week at uh, 7.45 start-off, ready to go again for the next session. Thanks very much for coming. And it gets easier, friends, as you've got these concepts uh, sort of together. It gets easier through the next couple of weeks uh, as you apply these things. Thanks very much.